Hey, and welcome to Bread. We're an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church meeting in Los Angeles. This talk is from a current series on the book of Revelation that we've titled, The End of Fear. We hope it serves you well. Welcome. I know there are people here for the first time who are checking us out. You're really welcome. It's great to have you with us. As we say to everyone here, you're uh, here. You're here on your own terms. Uh, so um, feel free to uh, check us out for as long or as little time as you like. Uh, we are carrying on um, a self-inflicted series on Revelation. We chose to do this about Revelation. It is very strange, isn't it? Uh, but we're doing it. And let me do a brief uh, recap of what we spoke about in the intro last week. So the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, takes three forms. It is, as its name suggests, a revelation or an apocalypse is actually the actual word, but an apocalypse doesn't mean what it's come to mean for us, this sort of end of war um, uh, kind of disaster type zone. Actually, an apocalypse means a form of writing that was popular around the time of Jesus where God reveals something to human beings of what is going on in heaven. Uh, heaven is not far off, it's close. And uh, this is a sort of glimpse behind the curtain of um, not just being focused on the material things of this world, but what's going on uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, yes, uh, a peeling back of the curtain, that sort of thing. And the writing is not supposed to be taken necessarily literally. It is poetic in its nature. It's a sort of um, description of heaven, past, present, and future. It is also not just a revelation, it is also a letter to seven churches in particular in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, written at around the time of 95 AD, but it is also, like all the other letters in uh, the Bible, a timeless letter to all churches, including ours, for all of time. And it is a prophecy in the true biblical sense of the word. Prophecy is not so much about the details of the future, rather prophecy, as the Bible understands it, is what God wants to say to his people right now. And here is one of the things that God wants to say to his people right now in the book of Revelation and us as well. And it's what we're going to concentrate on this morning. Are you ready? Evil, says God, is real. And it's not just out there. It's also in here and in here. So, says God, will you, with me, choose to overcome it? Because in fact, says God, I've already done that. So why not just join with me the winning team? That's where we're going today. I'm doing four chapters. It's a lot. Chapters two and three are addressed as letters to these seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea in uh, an area, as I said, is commonly now understood to be Turkey. Christians in these cities were in the minority. And this is important because they were persecuted violently, often with a threat of imprisonment and uh, death even. They were pressured constantly to give up their faith in Jesus, or at least to assimilate to the faith of Rome to worship the emperor, literally bow down and worship this imperial might. The world has never seen anything like the Roman Empire. It is conquering everything. Bow down and worship. Jesus writes to these churches 
as the only true imperial one, ruler not just of Rome and the earth, but also of the whole heavenly cosmos. And he calls his people to resist. Resist pagan evil. But of course, Jesus is not just Lord. He is also friend. He is the pastor who, it says, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, he walks with these churches. He's with them. And so he encourages them and praises them. There is an acknowledgement of their vibrant faith. For example, chapter 2, verse 3, you have persevered, he says to the church in Ephesus, and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Well done, he says. And there is encouragement for the future. For example, to the church in Philadelphia, hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. It's very important for us to understand that we need to not rush ahead towards the more famous critiques that Jesus, the stinging critiques that Jesus wants to say to these churches without hearing these praises, these encouragements from Jesus the pastor to his people. In numerous studies of parental feedback, the evidence is overwhelming and it shows that children thrive when they are praised. Both their confidence and their competence spikes. And they tend to quickly lose self-esteem. They become more and more defiant, more and more aggressive, the more they are criticized. And the same is true for us as adults. Again, numerous studies have shown that organizations perform well when the workforce is praised a lot, something like actually five to one when it comes to praise to criticism. I need to be honest with you. I'm a parent, and I'm also a boss stroke manager of a staff team. If you ask my children and the children of my staff team, they will tell you, I'm not very good at praise. I quite like criticism. I'm just being honest with you. It's kind of, it's not because I'm a horrible person. I mean, it might be, but I don't think it is. It's really what I've grown up with. A constant, you could be better, you can do better, you can do better. It's what I've learned, and it's actually what I am more comfortable with. I prefer it when people criticize me. Weird, isn't it, than when they praise me? I find praise difficult. And so that is how I give out as well. But I see the effect it has on people, and it's not good. I also see the effect it has on me. It's not good. Undoubtedly, if you are like me, and criticism, either the giving or the receiving or both, has been the story much more of your life than praise, this is going to have an effect on how you see yourself before the living God. It's going to have an effect on what you think the living God wants to say to you. And almost certainly, it is not going to go well for you with that relationship. Because God, after all, is the perfect parent, and he's also the perfect boss, the perfect Lord. And given that when the earthly versions of these figures praise us, we thrive, surely 
God, our perfect parent and perfect boss, wants to praise us so that we thrive. He is, after all, the one who has come to extraordinary lengths to bring life in all its fullness. It's only, really, when we grasp quite how much God loves us, quite how much he's proud of you, quite how much that you are the special one to him, that we'll have any chance of actually allowing him, when he needs to, to put his finger on the difficult things so that he can change us and renew us and bring us out of the things that are holding us back. Do you want to give you a little prophetic word? Yeah, go on. Uh, this is my wife, Hannah. She doesn't need a round of applause. I was just introducing her. Thanks, guys. Oh, aren't you lovely? Um, it would be a bit weird if I said no, wouldn't it? I don't want to give my prophetic word. But I actually, I've been away and I just got back last night and I had no idea what this talk was about when I gave this word in the, um, in the prayer meeting this morning, which is another evidence for you about how organized we are as a team. But what I felt as we were worshiping and um, we stopped for a minute just to listen to God, what I felt, what I, what I saw was a picture of the picture in my mind whenever I read the story about the hemorrhaging woman who reaches for Jesus' cloak. <clears throat> and what I really saw was just the fact that she gets this tiny, tiny bit of the cloak. It's not like she kind of gets him and has him, you know, square by the shoulders and looks into his eyes and grabs him. She gets, in my mind, in my imagination, she gets a tiny bit of his cloak as they're in this, in the, in this crowd. And what I felt like that was about was very much what I think we understand in this town um, in a fleshly way of how good it makes us feel when we have the time or the friendship or the attention of somebody important, somebody powerful, somebody famous, somebody influential. And how perhaps when we think about our relationship with Jesus, we don't necessarily feel like we're one of the ones that gets to look him square in the shoulders and have the eye contact with him. We don't feel like his favorite. We don't feel like we would have been one of the disciples who's sort of invited to follow him everywhere. But this picture of just having a tiny bit of his cloak and being so filled with power that she is completely healed of something that has dogged her for her entire life. And that being a reminder to us this morning that whatever you feel like in terms of what you have or where you think you are in your faith, that it's just the tiny bit that gives us everything we need. Thank you, Hannah. So, know that Jesus doesn't love you. Of course, he loves you, but that he likes you. That you're the apple of his eye. And then, with that as a foundation, we can hear his critiques. I'm going to do the two most infamous from Revelation. This is to the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Um, we redid our kitchen recently, and we put in it a filtered tap. This filtered tap not only does boiling hot water, so as a British person I can have a cup of tea instantly, it also does freezing cold, chilled, iced, filtered water for when you're hot and you need to cool down. 
Hannah and I have talked about this. We think that this might be the singly best thing we've ever done. If our house burns down, that's the thing I'm rescuing. Forget the children. Forget the dog. I'm joking. It's that. Ta it's amazing. Now, actually, the cold water thing is broken at the moment, so it's not working. But don't worry about that. The point is, hot is good, cold is good. Unfortunately, this is, passage has been misinterpreted to say that lukewarm is, is some sort of um, middle-of-the-road, wishy-washy indifference. It's not. What Jesus is saying is, if you're hot, great. If you're cold, great. But you are neither. And the way they are neither, the way they are lukewarm is, verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, this is the central message, prophetic call throughout Revelation. Do not go after other gods. Don't let pagan evil creep in. Don't compromise with Rome. Do not bow down and assimilate to Rome's imperial worship. Don't worship worldly wealth. Yes, you may be materially rich, but you've lost Jesus. Do not compromise. Do not go after anything other than the living God. This is what Jesus wants to say to us. The case is the same in the letter to the church in Theatira. This is chapter 2, verse 20. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around a bit, but you'll get the picture. Nevertheless, he says to the church in Theatira, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So, I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Okay. Now, it's not clear whether this person is actually called Jezebel, or more likely this is a nickname for her because of the similarities she has to a famous Jezebel from Israel's past. OG Jezebel was a Phoenician princess yeah, I like that as well. A, a non-Jewish person who nevertheless became queen of Israel because she uh, married into the royal family. But OG Jezebel was not a good queen. She continued to worship the gods of her ancestry. She brought hundreds of priests of Baal into Israel and she slaughtered Israel's prophets. She was hated by the whole of Israel and she was involved in what was described as whoredoms and sorceries. And eventually, she was thrown out of a bedroom window, trampled by horses, and eaten by dogs. Lucky old OG Jezebel. Now, it's easy to fixate on the more salacious aspects of Jezebel's sin. But these are actually just symptoms of a greater problem. The core issue was that Jezebel was an idolater. And the Jezebel here in Revelation is so-called because her fundamental sin is exactly the same. The misleading she is doing is disastrous, not primarily because it is leading people into sexual immorality, destructive as that is, or of eating food offers to idols, which actually Paul earlier has said, actually, you can do that without being sinful. So that's clearly not 
the sole problem. The misleading she is doing is disastrous primarily because she's leading people away from Jesus as Lord. This Jezebel is teaching compromise. Be a bit Christian, but also be a bit pagan. And as far as Jesus is concerned, this is always an absolute disaster. So the casting of Jezebel onto a bed of suffering, the making those who commit adultery with her suffering intently, and the striking of her children down, dead is no doubt uh, symbolic. It's not to be taken literally. But it is, and this is the problem for us, symbolic of actually something real. And what is real is the utter, uncompromised determination of Jesus as Lord to purge from us, his beloved children, anything and all that robs us of life. He can't stand it. He really does not like sin. Just before we move on, a quick note about the Jezebel spirit. Do you want to hear about that? Some of you do. <laughs> this is the idea in some Christian circles that women, only women, can be taken over by a demonic spirit of Jezebel. And they can lead people, nearly always men, away from Jesus, usually by their sexual cunning. Just out of interest, has anyone come across this before? Just raise your hands. Shame on you. Joke. Three quick points. The Jezebel spirit is not mentioned in the Bible any time whatsoever at all. So I'm not sure it's a completely brilliant idea to make up something that is not in the Bible and then pretend that it is. Number two, it's never stated that either this Jezebel in Revelation or OG Jezebel were demonized. These two women are, in fact, grouped together because they share characteristics and behaviors. It's one thing to identify similar brokenness in people. It's quite another to assign it wholesale to the demonic. As soon as someone is labeled as being or having a demonic spirit, all discussion, all conversation, all pastoring, all discipling ends at that moment. The only thing that needs to happen is that this person needs to be supernaturally released. This is belittling and reductionist if that person is not demonized at all. Now, of course, anyone can be demonized, but most people are not. Much better to treat issues of character and behavior as issues of discipleship. If and when the demonic is present, it is obvious and it can be dealt with swiftly and completely by people who know what they're doing. Thirdly, and most importantly, the whole concept has a little, actually more than a little, of the pungent stench of misogyny to it, doesn't it? After all, let's play a little game as we sit here. Briefly consider the people that you have heard about or know, just in, say, the last 50 years, in positions of leadership in churches, who have done the sorts of things that the Jezebel spirit is said to cause. Who are the ones that we know about who, for instance, have misled impressionable people away from Jesus? Who are the ones who have seduced people into parting with their money or their time or their innocence? for personal gains? Who are the ones who have engaged in sexual impropriety? I'm going to say that nearly all of them are men. 
and yet they're never accused of having the Jezebel spirit. Funny that. So, shall we just park that idea? If anyone raises it, just from me, slap them a bit in the face. Good. Back to us. Yes, evil is out there, but it's also in here. So, what are we actually focusing our attention and worship towards? As Bob Dylan said, we've all got to serve somebody. I would resist the temptation at looking simply on the outward and obvious symptoms. Although, of course, they can be helpful signposts. Anxiety, anger, lack of self-control. These things tend to point to an underlying problem. So what's at the core for you right now? What has taken your devotion? Jesus famously said that it's the love or worship of money that's the root of all evil. But I think it's probably fair to say that not far behind we can add the usual suspects. Fame, success, sex, violence, power, the love of something that actually can never be ours. I'll be honest, I know that I get most anxious, that I start behaving in odd ways, detrimental ways to myself and to other people, when I feel like I'm not getting enough recognition. Just being honest. I just want people to love me. I know I sort of give the impression of not really caring. It's not true. I want to know that my life has meant something that people acknowledge me. And when I don't feel that, when I feel insecure about that, that's when I start doing some odd things. But enough about me, what about you? Reject the idols, resist the idols, and all the other symptoms will surely recede. But how do we do that? How do we overcome? I think for most people, they would quite like the book of Revelation to carry on in this sort of um, letter-writing theme. It would be easy to get a handle on. It would be like Paul's letters, nice ethics of do this, don't do that, and then it all finishes up, we're all going to heaven, great. It might be challenging, but it's easy for us to understand. But of course it doesn't. Actually, straight after these uh, two chapters of letters, we go on this apocalyptic vision of slightly crazy worship, chapters four and five. We shift from pastoral missive to full-blown poetic apocalyptic revelation. Now, these two chapters are some of the most beautiful and powerful writing in the whole Bible. They are actually at the heart of revelation. They are visions of hymns and praise and worship. Firstly, in chapter 4, to God the Creator, who is there sitting on his throne. And then in chapter 5, to Jesus, his Son. And the comparison is clear. These are one and the same. Different persons, same attributes, one God, both equally worthy of uncompromised devotion. Why the sudden shift? Well, I've been grappling with this for a bit. And what I think is going on here is it's not just this sort of um, impromptu, ecstatic ascent into apocalyptic vision of worship. 
these chapters actually also hold the practical keys of how we become the victorious people that Jesus has called us to be. Because they tell us what we can do, and they remind us what Jesus has done. So we'll look at both quickly in turn. This is chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now most children grow up understanding heaven being this sort of far off place. You may well, like me, have grown up with that vision of heaven. To be honest though, it does sound quite boring. Cloud dwelling, off, up in the sky somewhere, playing a harp. No one really likes the harp. They just pretend they do because it makes them look sophisticated. Playing the harp over and over again, monotonously, eternally, for all time. Does anyone actually want to do that? Well, Jesus casts a vision of heaven that is nothing like this. Behold, he says, the kingdom of God, which is always a euphemism for heaven, is at hand. It's actually within your grasp. It is right here, right now. You can touch it and you can see it. Heaven is not far off in the distance. It is right here, right now. And it has, in Jesus, collided with earth. It is redeeming earth. And at one point, it will entirely subsume earth, creating a glorious new creation where heaven and earth are finally one. All pain, all suffering will cease and death will be no more and evil will be utterly and completely destroyed. Here in chapter 4, where John sees this door into heaven, it is right here in front of his face. And what is happening in this so close you can grasp it heaven is worship. Four figures, one like an ox, one like a lion, one like a man, one like an eagle, representing the whole of the creation. Worshipping God, the king of the universe. There are flashes of lightning. There are rumblings of thunder. There is a sea of glass as clear as crystal. Then 24 human figures representing all God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, all the people who look to Jesus, lay down their crowns before him, worshipping him. Why? Because he is the great creator. We're all going to worship something. Only one thing is worthy. Now, God doesn't need our worship, of course. He'll be absolutely fine without our worship. He is not some insecure Instagrammer. It's actually us. We're the ones who need it, the worship of God. Because this vision shows us that worship of the Creator is actually the heartbeat of the cosmos. It's what's going on in heaven all of the time. And you, me, we, are heaven people. It's why we're never quite at peace here. So we long, we pine for the worship of heaven. It's why when we have an amazing worship time like we did just now and we're going to in a minute, everything else sort of falls by the wayside, doesn't it? 
Nothing else really matters because that is what we're created for. It's like worship of God is our true north. We are always desperately trying to get back to it. I've been thinking a little bit about something that Jesus says about money in his teaching. He says, um, very famously, uh, no one can serve two masters, i.e. God and money. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will despise the one and serve the other. Quite legitimately and rightly, I'm sure you'll have heard this preached as a sort of warning. Do not serve money, serve God, which is, of course, true. But what I've been realizing is it's also just purely a statement of fact. It is actually impossible to serve two masters. If, therefore, you are serving the true God, if you are worshiping the true God, you can't serve anything else at that time. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when I am there just giving my all to Jesus, singing with us together, worshiping him, I'm not really thinking about doing any lusting. I'm just not. I'm not thinking about doing any coveting. I'm not thinking about anxieties about my financial status. I am just worshipping him because it's impossible to do anything but. It's impossible to serve two masters. So at the very basic level, the starting point for us to be victorious people is to worship him. Which is why we're going to do that in a minute. So that's what we can do. And to end, let us remind ourselves what he has done. This builds our faith like nothing else. So if chapter 4 was a theophany, a vision of worship of God the Creator, chapter 5 is a Christophany, a vision of worship of Jesus, his Son. Chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In very simple terms, the story of the Bible is the story of God rescuing his creation, the pinnacle of which is you and me. The scroll here mentioned in the hand of God the Creator in verse 1 represents God's plan, his eschatological plan, for that very redemption, to save the world. The problem is, verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look at it. John weeps at this. Is the world destined to be fully redeemed ever? Will we ever see the end to evil and violence and suffering and death? Humanity has, from the beginning, failed. We know this. Israel, God's chosen people, has, from the beginning, failed. We know this. Will our struggle ever end? Are we just here, floating on this rock in outer space, just making the best of it? 
never to actually experience anything more, never to actually experience a life free from corruption. The thought is enough to make you weep, to despair. Many people through the ages have done. But then one of the figures declares, verse 5, do not weep because see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. We are not destitute. The true human, the true Israelite, the one perfect representation of humanity and of God's chosen people, he has done what no one else could do. The lion has triumphed. And it is a lion, majestic in roaring power. That's what John hears announced. But it's not a lion that he sees. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The whole drama twists at this moment. This is the crux of the whole of Revelation. Jesus may have all the violent power of a roaring lion, but the way in which he overcomes evil is not as a roaring lion, but as a slaughtered lamb. There are no attack helicopters coming or ferocious acts of military force. There is no furious, barbaric slaughter to prepare for. Rather, Jesus the victor, the lion in all his ultimate power and supreme royalty, has defeated all the powers of evil with gentle vulnerability and ultimate weakness as a lamb who was slain. This says God, is how it's going to go. This is how it has already gone and how it will continue to go. Violence just begets violence. But evil has no answer to perfect love. And so he calls us, his people, to put our faith in him once more. This is how we overcome Rome, with all its barbaric, totalitarian, imperial violence, like every other past, present, and future regime of evil, with all its idolatrous worship of self, will be laid low, and all sickness and death, all corruption and sadness, all cosmic evil will be destroyed as we, people made for heaven, longing for heaven, worship him and no one else. And we, as beneficiaries of the cross, of perfect love, like the Lamb, choose not violence, but love. Do you want to overcome? The world needs it. The church, by God, needs it. And we personally need it. Can I encourage us? Let us worship the true King. He loves you. And let us put our faith in perfect love, nothing else. Amen. Amen. Tarves. Should we worship the Lord together? So we're going to worship for a bit. We normally worship at the beginning, but you know, we mix things up. 
What I suggest we do as we prepare to do this is hear again that prophetic word from Hannah. You may feel like you're not one of the special ones. Who are you? And that all you can do is cling on to the hem of his garment. That's more than enough. Because his love for you is so extraordinary, so big, that even just a touch of his presence has the power to completely heal, completely restore you. Know that he loves you. Secondly, anything that's come to mind during this service, anything that's come up in your conscience, anything that you would really like to forget about, but all of a sudden there it is at the forefront of your mind, you don't need to go digging for it, but anything you know that is just a barrier between you and him, why don't you, as you stand up, leave it in your pew and don't pick it up again? Behold, he says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far I've removed your sin from you. Even though our sin is like scarlet, I will make you as white as snow, as white as the pure driven snow. So leave it there knowing that Jesus has forgiven it all. And then having done that, give yourself to him again. He's what you're made for. Nothing else will do. Good? Good. Let's stand.